When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Last week, a major hurricane made landfall across Florida's Big Bend. The first time a storm of that strength has made landfall over the region since the 1800s. Idalia went from a Category 1 hurricane to a powerful Category 4 in just a matter of hours overnight and came crashing ashore as a strong Category 3 Wednesday morning near Keaton Beach. The storm then moved quickly across Florida into Georgia and the Carolinas as a hurricane weakening into a tropical storm as it continued to drop heavy rain, strong winds and tornadoes over the southeast, finally exiting the Carolina coast on Thursday afternoon. My friend Brian Norcross, our Fox weather hurricane specialist, is one of the country's greatest experts when it comes to covering tropical systems with a career spanning more than five decades. He helped his city in Florida prepare years in advance for what would be one of the most catastrophic storms to hit Florida in history, Hurricane Andrew. Brian made some time in between his nonstop reporting on Fox News, Fox Business and Fox Weather to share his knowledge and insight into Idalia, as well as the other storms he's covered and to detail the important role broadcast meteorologists play, despite the many other avenues where people can get their news and information. So please welcome Fox Weather's hurricane specialist and author of My Hurricane Andrew Story and Hurricane Almanac, The Essential Guide to Storms Past, Present, and Future. Here is Brian Norcross on the Janice Dean Podcast. Brian Norcross, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Janice. You've been a busy guy. This We're taping this on Wednesday uh, when Idalia made landfall earlier this morning as a Category 3 strong major hurricane, was a 4 uh, for a brief period of time. What's your takeaway with this storm? I know we're not done yet, and the storm is still going to move through Georgia and South Carolina as of this taping. But you know, what comes to mind when you talk about this system? Well, I think the, one of the most important things with this system is the scope of the storm surge, uh, that the National Hurricane Center forecasts storm surge for hundreds of miles south on the coast. Mm-hmm. And remember last year with Ian, when Ian was originally forecast to go farther away from Fort Myers. Indeed, the storm surge forecast had was issued. Mm-hmm. Even with a storm forecast to go closer to Tampa Bay, the Fort Myers area had the storm surge forecast issued okay. uh, well in advance in plenty of time. So I hope the takeaway here is for folks that they can remember this situation that indeed those forecasts are real. Yes. That, that the effects and the impacts of the hurricane extend way outside of the core of the storm, and especially on the Gulf Coast, where uh, the the Gulf Coast is just very prone to high storm surge because of the shape of the land. There's a big shelf if you go to Clearwater Beach or uh, Fort Myers Beach or any of those any of the beaches along the coast. There, you you can walk out uh, away from the beach, you know, just walking. Right? Yes. 
and it's only a hundred feet deep. I don't know, a long way out because there's a big shelf there. Well, what that shelf does is that lifts the water up. Once the water is propelled by the storm, that lifts it up and then it's higher so it can go farther inland more easily. So that whole coast is very, very prone to high storm surge. Uh, and as we've seen here, well outside the uh, where the actual track is. So hopefully this will reinforce what we learned last year that at the coast – you don't just look at that cone. You yes. look at the warnings being issued by the National Hurricane Center and what the details of them are for your location, mm -hmm. not focusing on just where the center of the storm is going. Right. And you made mention that in your mm. forecasting, you do the surge graphic first. In a high stor surge storm, mm -hmm. yes. I, I start with the the cone with the surge uh, forecast on it to show we're not going to focus on the cone. We're going to focus on the surge. Mm -hmm. Now, not that the cone is important because the cone is when we look at how strong the storm is going to be, is forecast to be, and in this case, how it's going to weaken or not weaken yes. as it moves across the land. But uh, but yes, to me, that that's the, the real lesson from Ian mm. is that, that so many people, both residents and officials and everybody, focused on the cone, mm -hmm. and they thought, okay, they, they, they kind of took their foot off the accelerator of thinking about it hard and therefore didn't concentrate on the fact that they were forecasting up to seven feet above normal high tide on an island that, at the you know, from the shore to the peak is about three feet. So yes. it was dangerous from the get-go, mm -hmm. but that sense of danger did not uh, permeate you know, the psyche of a lot of folks in the public. Yes. And, and uh, you know, that's the real lesson from that storm last mm -hmm. year. And so we, we tried to change that that orientation of the messaging instead of putting storm surge last, put it first. I think it's really important. Like mm -hmm. even a storm like Ian has, we have so much learning to do still from right. these systems. Yeah. And the, you know, the forecasting, uh, Ian stayed in the cone, was on the edge of the cone, but it stayed in the cone. This one stayed much closer to the center of the cone. Mm -hmm. But the cone is the cone because there are so many issues that are, are subtle and that are big. Generally, we forecast the big ones pretty well, but the subtle ones we don't always for example? do. Well, for example, when a storm is moving slowly, you have very small influences on it. So one small influence can override another small influence, and it, it ends up being 50 miles farther west. Well, then the starting point of as it's advancing toward the coast is shifted over and kind of shifts the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So until the storm gets well established, for instance, in Ian, remember it hit Cuba. And yes. that disrupted it. Yes. Right. Well, that's not very far from Southwest Florida. You know, when it, when it's in Cuba, so the forecasts were getting their footing uh, after this disruptive storm. So the mm. rule is, if the storm is moving moving slowly, is disorganized or just organizing, the forecasts are going to have higher errors okay. and expect them to have higher errors. Mm. So uh, with Ian, it got disrupted over Cuba. It was just getting itself organized so the forecasts from at that point are going to have less certainty here because it, it was in the gulf of mexico uh and it got itself organized and the river of air established itself really well between mm -hmm. high pressure over the atlantic and low pressure coming in over the gulf 
a very well-established river that it was caught in. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had both a reasonably organized storm and a and a, a good, uh, well-understood river. Where in in Ian, it was everything was evolving, and you had the storm disorganized. So you you had more variety of factors. Mm-hmm. Explain to me what the storm surge is for people that don't quite understand it, that don't live in an area that's prone to it. Well, so if you have a, a cup of coffee and you blow on the cup of coffee, the coffee is going over to the other side of the cup yes. and eventually it'll spill over the side, right, mm-hmm. if you really blow hard. So that's what the storm surge is. It's the energy of the wind uh, being put in the water and moving the water. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about you know, a huge cup of coffee the size of the Gulf of Mexico, right, and a huge uh, storm all pushing water in one direction. It's pushing it toward the coast. Well, the water, when it normally, when the water hits the coast, it comes back out. We all experience that at the beach, right? The yes. waves go in and then they come back out. But if there's enough wind pressure pushing in, the water can't come back out. More water comes in. And, and then when you have the shelf lifting it, mm-hmm. you have all this happening uh, all on top of it. But generally, the thing is that the natural forces that take the water out, including the tide, including just the, the fact that the water is going uphill and, and it could run back downhill toward the beach, but the forces of the storm are strong enough to keep it going until those forces are let up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's that it's the water propelled by the wind force pushing it over the land. That's what we call storm surge. In the modern time here, we define it as really inundation, which means the water above high tide. Okay. So if people go down to the beach, they say, okay, I can see where the high tide line is here. Mm-hmm. Now imagine four feet, six feet, 12 feet, higher water than that. Yes. And then you look and see, okay, how far could that go inland? If you are if you live in, the, in Maine and you have a rocky coast, it's not going inland. You're not mm-hmm. having a storm surge problem, right? You live in flat Florida then or the Gulf Coast uh, in Louisiana. Lake Charles is about 30 miles inland, and there is they are very prone to massive storm surge 30 miles inland wow. because you have the Calcasieu River that goes due south to north. If the storm is oriented just so that pushes up that river, Mm -hmm. the water just goes and goes and goes and goes because it's flat as can be. And uh, so it's an extreme threat, as we almost saw in Laura. So Laura, a few years ago, went just to the right. So the push was not strong up the river, but it ended up being, what, 17 feet there in Mm -hmm. um, Cameron Parish, which is just to the east. So... Laura missed by about 15 miles of putting water 30 to 40 miles inland uh, all the way up into Lake Charles. What do you think about the categories? Because, you know, for something like this, as a meteorologist, as someone that's trying to convey a message, I always say, you know, in this particular storm, okay, category, it's a four, it's a three, but but the storm surge, it's almost like you shouldn't gauge that by the category. And I think we can go back to even a Katrina where when it made landfall, it was a category three, but it had a massive storm surge of upwards of 30 feet. So, you know, can we make it better somehow? Well, the thing is that that storm surge is the amount of storm surge at any one location is dependent on the strength of the storm. That's the category. Okay. Right. But it's also dependent on the size of the storm. 
right. the the diameter of the storm, or, the, or it's really the radius of the storm, in the direction where the winds are blowing on shore. Mm-hmm. Katrina was huge. Yes. So you had Category 3, but you had huge radius. So uh, the analogy I use there is if you have a bathtub full of water and you put your hand in the bathtub and push the water, a certain amount of water moves. Yes. Put your whole arm in there and push the water, a whole lot of water moves. Okay. The arm is equivalent to the the bigger storm. Yes. So it's the speed of the winds, the size of the storm, the angle of approach. Mm -hmm. So if the storm is heading right into the coast, that's much worse than if it's heading at an angle to the coast, because at an angle to the coast, some of that energy gets deflected back out, Mm. where when it's straight on, all the energy is going straight into the coast. Mm -hmm. So that's the third factor. And then the fourth factor is nothing to do with the storm. It's related to the topography and how how deep the water is and the shape of the coast. Uh, the um, the big bend up there is shaped like a big catcher's mitt. Yes. Tampa Bay is shaped like a little catcher's mitt, mm-hmm. right? Like a, a glove, right? So when the water goes into those bays that are shaped like that, it's more likely to build up because it can't deflect off a flat coast. Okay. If the coast is perfectly flat, mm-hmm. the, some of it deflects initially, where if it goes into a bay, you get... Uh, the winds can be a whole bunch of different directions, and it'll still get caught in the bay and not able to get out. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we talk about the surge, but freshwater flooding is also a huge danger right. in, well inland that we need to also reinforce. Yeah, so, you know, we saw in Hurricane Ian tremendous flooding because uh, Ian moved relatively slowly across the state, and and um, it's a flat place. Florida is a flat place, right? Mm-hmm. The in fact, a lot of Florida was marshy, so what they did is they dug a hole, made a lake, and took that dirt and and made it where they could build houses on it. So if you fill up where that water is collected, now it's, the land is not very high uh, above that water. So uh, in flat places, you have that kind of flooding, and it takes a long time for that flooding to go away. For instance, in in uh, southeast Florida, in, in the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area, well, the high ground in Miami and Fort Lauderdale is is where the cities are, mm-hmm. where the city of Fort Lauderdale is, where the city of Miami is, which is you have these vast suburbs to the west. Well, that's all downhill to the Everglades. Yeah. So if you get tremendous rain on the west side of those counties in the in all those where millions of people live in those suburbs, that water is not going anywhere fast because that's it has to actually go through just the, the canals that they've dug to get it to the coast to drain, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because that's all that was Everglades. Yeah. Mother Nature made that Everglades out mm-hmm. there where all those, uh, you know, where millions of people live in um, in Broward and Miami-Dade County. So large areas are like that. But then you get in the Carolinas and you have a different kind of problem because there you have terrain. Any place you have hilly terrain when it rains hard over a large area, the water funnels down into valleys, creeks, streams, and so forth uh, because it's not flat, mm-hmm. right? It's a different kind of issue, and that's what we're going to have in the Carolinas from this with the combination of the uh, uh, the tropical wa- moisture mm-hmm. and the elevation just causes additional rain. The The band of heaviest rain is actually inland. It's not at the coast. Mm-hmm. It's to the left of where the center track is. And then you also have a cold front 
pushing in, which will enhance the rain as well. So mm-hmm. we expect flash flooding across the Carolinas uh, from that different phenomena of the water running down into the river streaks, streams, uh, streams, valleys, and so forth. Yep. And we'll be back with more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, as someone who warns of storms coming in and officials trying to make sure people get out while they can, I still can understand why some Floridians say, nope, I'm not going. Mm -hmm. And it's heartbreaking uh, because, you know, some of them just maybe don't have the, the means to do it. Well, and you have it's very complicated because Florida, Florida is a you complex. Are, you state. live in Florida. Uh, I'm a Floridian. I grew up in Florida, and I live in Florida. It's a it's a complicated place in terms of the people. Okay. Because um, you know, not many people are from there, mm-hmm. and so uh, you have lots of folks. They come and they they maybe they retire or whatever. They come to places where they don't know a lot of people in town. Okay. You know, it's not like where they came from in Michigan or or wherever yes. where they knew people in town, mm-hmm. right? So they don't know a lot of people in town. So in, in Southeast Florida, if you come and you live on the the, the beach, you, you buy a condo in Miami Beach or in Sunny Isles or Hollywood or Hallandale or or someplace, you know, and then they say you have to leave there and you have to go inland somewhere. Mm. You you don't know people in there. You mm-hmm. just you know your community is right in your building or. Whatever, if you've moved down, you can live there 10 years and never know anybody off the barrier island. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's a different kind of situation than living in a, a town that's been around a long time and your family's been there, and, right. you know, and you have roots and, and things. So you, so you have a lot of that that doesn't exist in Florida, which makes it more difficult. And you also have just all different kinds of people in Florida. So that that also, you know, that's the Miami is the epitome of that. It's what makes Miami great. But on the other hand, when you have a, a situation like this, people don't know that neighborhood over there, mm. right? Now, we learned after Hurricane Andrew that people that are in a neighborhood and they maybe they've never even met, they end up meeting after the storm and it's, it's great, right? But when you're trying to make a decision on whether to evacuate – Going to parts of town where where maybe most people speak a different language or they mm. just have a different culture or places you've never been you you don't know that address you don't know what it's like um, it's 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 hard it's, it's complicated really hard and besides that peninsula uh, the peninsula of Florida is this narrow place has a few roads out yeah that's it right uh, the a hurricane like uh, Hurricane Irma if it had come a little bit um, farther east so it had really impacted the uh, the six six and a half million people on the southeast coast uh it would have been a whole different 
issue as bad as it was. Mm-hmm. It would have been a whole different issue. Listen to how many I names we just talked about, I know, I know. right? I know. I think they're scraping the bottom of the barrel on I names <laughs> here. We have Idalia, which, you know. Will uh, be retired probably. Which will be retired, I'm sure. Yeah. I talk, I mean, there's something with that. Beware of the I, <laughs> yeah. right? Because Well, I, because it usually, uh, you know, usually the I's come in late August or September. That's the peak of hurricane season. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, so it, it stands to reason, okay. uh, I guess, but it is a little bit freaky. That, it is. That the, eyebrows raised. Yes. that uh, And and when this one started, we thought, okay, we're finally going to get past an eye storm. Oh, nope. We didn't. <laughs> right. Talk about the Gulf water. That's a huge factor. Yeah. So the Gulf was, was super warm, uh, but it was warm mostly because of the heat dome. Mm. Not heating the Gulf water, but because of the heat dome, the same reason it was, it's been miserable in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, South Florida uh, this year. Yeah. Miserable. And um, and in Tampa, Sarasota, they've had a drought, mm. right? The, so the weather pattern has been weird. And the reason it's been miserable, the reason that they've had a drought, and the reason that the Gulf water is so warm, and the water in the Keys, if you remember, they measured 101 degrees, mm-hmm. which is not unheard of, by the way, but it's because the easterly breeze, the breeze off the Atlantic Ocean, has not been as strong this year as normal. So the thing that makes the the beaches and and all in South Florida actually tolerable in the summers, you get a nice ocean breeze. breeze. So it hasn't been as strong. Hmm. Well, when it's not as strong, you don't get the push of thunderstorms over to the west coast of Florida, so we end up with a drought. You don't get the mixing of the water. So the thing that keeps the water temperature moderated to some degree is that the wind blows over it and it mixes it. Mm-hmm. Since we've had since the the heat dome goofed up the weather pattern all around it, mm-hmm. we haven't had the breeze. You end up then with kind of the air is more stagnant. You get more humidity because the water is warmer. All these things happen uh, that cause cause differences but it was really related to the heat dome uh, that and and having it be exceptional we always get heat domes in the summertime it happens mm-hmm. right but having it be so exceptionally strong and and uh, and fairly stationary dominating the weather pattern so when it was stationary everything else was stationary you don't get the wind you heat the water you, you get more humidity you know, other things happen. You don't get the breeze across Florida pushing storms west. Mm-hmm. All these all these things line up. What do you think of the whole extreme weather? I mean, I listened to you today. We were talking about the fact that a storm of this strength really hasn't hit the big bend of Florida. And I, I remember you said, well, in modern history, right. it's not that it might have not happened or it has happened, but since records have begun. Yeah, 18, no, 1896, there was the great Cedar Key hurricane so Cedar Keys in this general yes. area, they've got they got about seven feet of storm surge, mm-hmm. seven feet above normal high tide there in this one. So it's happened. It's like uh, talking about the Tallahassee hurricanes. Yes. yes, and you know, I mean, I went to Florida State uh, twice. I have two degrees from Florida State. Tallahassee is is a very warm place in my heart, and uh, you know, we had. Tropical events, yes, there, right? <laughs> tropical well, events, and and you know, Hurricane Michael was a big deal in um, Tallahassee, even yes. though it wasn't a direct direct hurricane. Yes, hit. I think the winds gusted to seventy one, as mm-hmm. I recall, in Tallahassee. Um, 
But if you go back, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in the 1870s and 1880s, it was one storm after the other in mm. Tallahassee. So it's like in Miami. Miami grew to this, you know, megalopolis kind of city down there during this time where we haven't had big, strong hurricanes. But in in the first seven decades of the 20th century, there were seven hurricanes that went right over downtown Miami. Mm. I mean, forgetting the ones, forgetting Hurricane Andrew, not counting Hurricane Andrew, not right. counting the great Fort Lauderdale hurricane in 47, not counting other ones that hit the Palm Beaches and the Keys. I'm saying right over downtown Miami, the eye went seven times in seven decades. Oh, wow. Right? Including the great Miami hurricane of 1926, which damaged 95% of the buildings in Miami-Dade and Broward County. Mm-hmm. So the it has a long hurricane history, but lately the strong storms have avoided Miami. Mm. I mean, there's no reason to think that a strong hurricane isn't coming to Miami. It's mm-hmm. just kind of crazy, you know. But, but they just don't happen that often. Right. And for whatever complicated set of reasons, they do tend to get in cycles of of certain areas over a certain period of time when you look at the historical database seems like oh okay during that time uh, the late 40s in south florida yeah 1945 1947 1948 1949 and 1950 five and six years category four has hit south florida wow you know, that would kind of change people's minds about, about hurricanes yes. that, that, that happened again, right? Uh, I almost feel like we have to, as much as I understand why people want to mm-hmm. give those kinds of statistics like this hasn't happened before mm-hmm. and it's right. to raise awareness and to make sure that people are, are aware that this is a, an extreme event. Right. But on the same t- side of it, it is an also, it's also important to know that um, we have to look back at history as well. We right. can't just all of a sudden say – this is happening because of this, mm. right? Yeah, I don't think there's a because of in this case. The the the, the heat dome. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of analysis of that, and and the research that people have done into the changing climate would indicate that these things are going to be more persistent and stronger. Mm-hmm. So uh, that seems like a, a just a reasonable implication of a warmer planet. Right. Also, all over the world, the the we have never measured going back decades now, water temperatures as warm, taking the whole planet into account. Mm -hmm. And nobody really understands why suddenly the water is so uh, amazingly warm on average in the the Mediterranean, in the eastern Atlantic, places where it's normally colder to have it be so much warmer. So all that is is concerning. There's Mm -hmm. no question about that. Uh, But in terms of this particular hurricane... Mm -hmm moving over warm Gulf waters and intensifying and uh, and then weakening right at the coast, mm-hmm. this is pretty much standard hurricane fare mm-hmm. of, of this is the way storms behave when they happen to develop, to develop in this kind of weather pattern, which normally happens in October. Yeah. What are the other vulnerable areas across the U.S. that, that it would be hard for a major hurricane to hit. You know, I think about Long Island. You know, we had Sandy, but, you know, we've been relatively lucky right. here in the Northeast. Yeah, so, you know, people think, okay, it, it can't happen. But again, the you know, the people have been in the Northeast a long time, so we have a really good hurricane history in the Northeast. And and so you can talk about the, 
like the mega storms in history. Uh, so going back to 1635, it's called the Great Colonial Hurricane. We happened to have in in um, Boston, you had the governor of uh, of the Massachusetts colony was in Boston, and you had the um, and these are names you would know in Plymouth, out on on by Cape Cod. You also had people talking about the storm and what the wind direction was. Wow. So we know where that storm track is tracked between Plymouth and Boston. And that was a very strong storm and people were clinging to the tops of trees to survive mm. on Cape Cod. So we know that can happen there. And then, uh, the next one you normally jump to is 1815. Now, there were other 16 storms in the 16s and 1700s, but I'm talking about in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. The 1815 storm did tremendous damage up into Providence and and took out a lot of the trees in uh, in New England and, and sort of there was a mega hurricane. And uh, the 1815 storm was the one actually that was analyzed so well that people figured out that hurricanes actually rotated. <laughs> So, wow. so uh, in in um, I hate to throw out uh, years that I'm not sure, of, but 1743 was it? No, it sounds too early. But anyway, Benjamin Franklin uh, was was in Philadelphia, and he was a curious guy. Right? Yes, and <clears throat> there was a hurricane that moved. It used to be at that time they thought that the storms moved the direction the wind flowed. Okay. They didn't realize that there was some kind of rotational aspect to it mm-hmm. at this time. And so uh, the wind was coming in Philadelphia, where Franklin was, from the northeast. <clears throat> and they thought the storm was going to come from the northeast. But then he looked at the newspapers that had been delivered to Philadelphia after the fact, and he found that the storm had come from the Carolinas to his brother in Boston. Uh. And he realized that the storm was an entity. So he was the first Benjamin one. Benjamin Franklin? Yeah, noticed that the storm what? was actually an entity as opposed to the wind somehow. Wow. And, but they didn't know that it was a rotating entity. And okay. it took until the 19th century and the beginning of the 19th century that that realization came along. And the seminal paper that was written about that was 1831, the guy named Redfield that actually went out and saw the trees, how the trees fell. And he saw the trees fell in this sort of circular kind of way yes. and wrote the paper. And to read the 1831 paper, it's amazing how perceptive he was of his analysis, uh, William Redfield, of uh, of how that worked. And then you get to the 1938 uh, Long, uh, Long Island, New England hurricane mm-hmm. and, and the stories about what happened there. I mean, just destroyed the eastern end of Long Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, but up into uh, New England and and the uh, just massive tree damage across uh, all of New England. And, you know, at that time, it was the populations were completely different. And mm-hmm. so these kinds of megastorms happen. And by the way, and like I said, we talk about those big, big, big ones, but there were lots of Hurricane Bob type storms. Hurricane Bob was 1991. Yes. That, that happened to hit in Buzzards Bay kind of faces to the south on Cape Cod, yep. you know, and it drives the water up in there and you can get 15, 20 feet of storm surge uh, in those bays. And Charleston, because Charleston got hit by the uh, storms of the 19th century, but the 1938 storm drove water up to the second floors were covered in downtown 
not I said Charleston, I mean Providence. Mm -hmm. In Providence, Rhode Island, in the 1938 storm, water was up to the second floors, and Hurricane Carol came in 1954, again, a mega flood in downtown Providence. Wow. So they put up a barrier. So you have a, a storm barrier now, very much like the barrier in the Thames in London, mm -hmm. that keeps the water from coming into the city yep. if you have the storm doing the wrong thing. So now they close that barrier to protect uh, Providence from storm surge. So mm. because they had those storms back then, they reacted. But most areas, uh, we don't have that. I mean, there's been this talk for a long time about the putting a flood barrier in Houston mm -hmm. called the so-called Ike Dyke. Oh, wow. Uh, to stop the water from going into Galveston Bay. Yes. Because if a storm uh, goes like just south of where Ike went, mm -hmm. uh, as, as happened in 1900 and, and uh, other times, 1915, the water goes in Galveston Bay, and then it goes up into Houston, which, as you know, is well inland. Well, all along there is uh, the you know major petrochemical infrastructure of the United States. Yes. So all that is vulnerable oh, to a hurricane going in the wrong place. Uh -huh. So the idea is if, if a hurricane were to come in there and do you know many, many tens of billions of dollars worth of damage just to petrochemical infrastructure causing an economic hit to the whole country. Wow. Why don't we spend a few billion and stop that from happening, yes. right? So that's uh, that's been the discussion for a number of years, but you know, the 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 nature of people and allocation of resources and priorities and so forth, it's usually after the bad thing happens mm -hmm. as opposed to being preventative. And we'll be back with more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. Where does this passion for hurricanes come from? Well, you know, I, I actually was not a hurricane guy. Uh, I mean, I studied tropical meteorology uh, at Florida State uh, from one of the, the old-time great guys, a guy named Noel Lesur was, was my uh, tropical professor. But it wasn't that I, I was hanging on every word. I grew up in Florida, so yeah. I thought hurricanes were cool. Actually, uh, you know, such as we had them where I lived uh, near Cape Canaveral. But when I was in Miami in the 1980s, I ended up uh, doing a program, a weather program every day, Monday through Friday at 530 on location, which I had this idea that I had created. Actually, I created it for a Los Angeles TV station, but we ended up doing it in Miami. And. And it was the idea was to go tell a story about a location every day. So I would go research stories. Sometimes the story was obvious and was an event or or I had a celebrity come to town or I had something to make as part of the show. So I did a little variety show every day. But other days I needed to tell find a place. And so I ended up going to the, the uh, History Museum in downtown Miami. There's a great uh, museum there. And I would spend time looking through the files for interesting pictures because I wanted to show, okay, what happened 50 years ago today? What happened mm. 65 years ago today? And I went, holy crap, there used to be a lot of hurricanes here. <laughs> and and I really didn't, I really didn't know that in and with such clarity mm -hmm. until that experience. And then I thought, you know, I'm not chief meteorologist. Now, and we're not paying much attention to hurricanes. We didn't pay much attention to hurricanes in the 80s. Hurricane huh. season came, nobody's heart rate went up, nothing. Really? Yes, because it had been since 65, since a significant hit, 66, 
there was a threat. Um, and in 79, there was a threat. Okay. But neither materialized for the city. Okay. And so it had been, at that time, going on 20 years. Wow. You know, since anything. And the city had grown dramatically in that time. So, we, you know, we weren't all talking about it, thinking about it. But I thought, okay, if if I'm ever chief meteorologist here in Miami and one of these hurricanes like used to happen, by this time I was reading about the, the history of Miami hurricanes, if one of these things happens, everybody's going to ask me, what do we do now? I better figure out what, we, what do we do now. Right. You know? Yeah. So then I did become chief meteorologist. Uh, NBC hired me to be chief meteorologist uh, there. And I said, okay, we're going to have to learn about hurricanes. And we spent two and a half years learning everything we could, preparing the station in every way we could. Wow. The, the management was fantastic and supported that effort. And two and a half years, uh, nothing happened, and everybody was getting pretty nervous, so maybe we need to rethink our strategy and mm. so forth. And then Hurricane Andrew happened. Then this unbelievable, hellacious thing happened that we had all the backup systems in place. We used every backup system we had. And so that set me on the, the path of, of what I realized in Andrew is, even though I had studied it solid for two and a half years, uh, I realized how much I didn't know hmm. and uh, how much there was to learn about not just South Florida hurricanes and hurricanes in general, but, but uh, you know, other places in the country. And, and the technology was advancing at that time. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I think about... You know, what I used, the paper maps that come off that old <laughs> printer that went yeah. so excruciatingly slow, you know, that uh, with very crude computer yes. forecast models and all that, that what I used during Hurricane Andrew compared to, you know, what we have today. Mm -hmm. But just through that time, the, the, the technology changed uh, so dramatically uh, that there's always so much to learn and there's so much to learn every year. The mm -hmm. You know, there's research being done. The, the people at the National Hurricane Center, I mean, I can't give them enough credit for right. for how well they do and how hard they work and, yes. and the passion that they have uh, for being the best uh, in the world. And, and uh, you know, so it, it really is a, a team. But what, what has happened over time is that the technology of forecasting has gotten better and better and better. Our technology or our understanding and our ability to communicate – Hmm. to people has not. Oh, wow. Uh, it, because it's different now. It's actually, I think it was easier to communicate with people and they had a better picture of the threat during Hurricane Andrew 31 years ago than people get today because they get so many fragments of information today. Okay. And, and, it's, and back then, it was on people like me and other communicators to assemble a message and deliver the message. Mm -hmm. Now we put that on the local residents to assemble the message and assimilate the information, and understand what it means okay. to them. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Because by the, just the nature of the world, people are looking on Facebook. They they tune on the television. They're looking on you know they're looking on their phone at Fox Weather. They're looking wherever they're looking. Yes. And they're getting. This little bit and this little bit, and then trying to evaluate, you know, okay, which one of those is the best? There's always this, you know, this one or that one kind of thing where you didn't have that. Yes. In Hurricane Andrew, it wasn't this one or that one. It, it was, was there's only the one. One message. One message, and it was much more, 
Interesting. You know, much, so uh, the technology is almost too much ahead of us. Yeah, it doesn't help getting a message out. It's not just in in hurricanes. I mean, it's just in general that yeah. that the fragmentation of communications and short messages and all of that. And, you know, how many times do you does it happen in life that you get a text and you understand what the words mean, but you didn't really understand what the person was trying to say, mm-hmm. right? Because you you know you know it's just a a fragment. It doesn't have the whole thing. Where when you're listening to a person on television, watching them talk, listening to them, if they're a good communicator, they say the message over and over again in different ways to be sure that you're absolutely clear. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then there hopefully there's somebody else saying. Just to be clear, what did you mean by that? And, and then you say it again, right? You know, that you have that whole communications uh, package mm-hmm. on television that that the, the having the Internet and, and Twitter and all these things doesn't help. It, mm-hmm. it actually detracts from that. And, and television is, is just – it's different – it holds a different place in our society than it did, uh, you know, back then, back then when you only had – Four channels. Yes. You know? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, you, CNN was around. Weather Channel was around at that time. Uh, but it was just a different kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Do you still love it? I mean, you've been doing – I mean, you've been going 24-7 <laughs> since this storm hit, was hitting. But do you still have this passion to communicate? Well, yeah. So I, I think of communications as being my thing. I don't try and forecast – uh, where the storm is going. People say, well, you know, what, what is your forecast? I, I, I say, let me see what the National Hurricane Center yes. mm-hmm. is saying, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I let them do the forecasting. But but it is a lot of technical information. And mm-hmm. my, you know, my background has was in science before it was in meteorology. I was a physics, math physics person before meteorology and, and a communications person. So I was a news producer, news director, news anchor even. Uh, mm-hmm. So I've been, a, and I was a radio disc jockey uh, initially. So, you know, I've been a communications kind of person. So merging the science and the communications has been my lane, uh, you know, for a long, forever, really, mm-hmm. in one fashion or the other. And, and um, you know, I, so I like to, to sort things out and say, okay, let's figure out what the important point to make here is and let, and uh, quite often let the meteorology go yes. and talk about what's going to happen and how it's going to affect people. I like that. I mm-hmm. feel like I will try to do that as well. You know, right. there are some people that will throw out around the fancy words mm-hmm. and, and I, you know, I, I get that. But, at the you know, I always think of the person that's in their living room or at the dinner table and and I just want to tell them in as simplest terms as I can what the danger is and what they have to do to protect their property and their family. Yeah, to understand the threat. Yeah. And uh, that's what, you know, I was at a, um, a, a seminar symposium uh, that was in St. Petersburg recently, as a matter of fact, the the uh, state of Florida, the Division of Emergency Management held it and brought a number of us together and uh, TV weather people and some county people really in reaction to Hurricane Ian and mm-hmm. the communications issues. Uh, Kevin uh, Guthrie, who's the director there in Florida, uh, led it, uh, you know, the, because there's this understanding of how that we need to improve this communications process. Yes. And one of my points was that when a storm is three, four or five days away, six days away, 
we never know exactly what's going to happen when it makes landfall, right? But we know when there's a threat. So if we can get the 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 people that whose voices count, which are, are the politicians, the emergency managers, and the broadcasters and the various communicators, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with the idea that we're going to forecast the threat, we're not going to try at four or five days out and pinpoint what exactly is going to happen at land, mm-hmm. but we know what areas are threatened and start talking about the threat in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So one of the the problems in Hurricane Ian was they just waited too long to actually talk about start talking about the threat. Mm-hmm. They waited until they actually had to issue evacuations as opposed to on that Friday before Five, six days out, they knew there was a threat, but there was no communications of leading people through the process of being threatened. Okay. So what do you want to do? You, first, you want to say, folks, okay, we have a threat. Mm-hmm. The storm is a long way away. Things could change, but uh, we, we want you to know that we are watching it with you. Okay. If this threat were to continue, we would have to start thinking about evacuations for next week. Okay. Not yet. But we just want to let you know. Okay. And then the next day, and we'll be back at 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next day, the threat continues. It's increasing some. We're still on schedule. If we have to do evacuations, we would start talking about it on Monday. So, you know, you you lead people through the process of how to think about it. Okay. Not just trying to describe what's going to happen when it makes landfall which we don't really know for sure, mm-hmm. but we do know there is a threat and that we need to be mentally engaged in the possibilities of what's coming. Mm-hmm. What's on the horizon? Mm-hmm. I mean, this one was out there. We had a few days lead up time. A lot of these systems come off the coast of Africa this time of year. Um, do you see anything that we need to pay attention to? Nothing uh, in the long range uh, computer forecast. There's a system coming off of Africa, but the Weather pattern, again, is not normal. Mm. Uh, in this case, not normal in a good way, okay. uh, turning systems north for now. Uh, this one actually originated in the Pacific. The computer forecasts were amazing. Like when we saw that, when I saw that, maybe some other people jumped on it. When I saw that, I thought, no, that's not going to happen uh, because it's that's not a thing that happens in August and doesn't happen that often. Where so it pis- crossed over the Pacific into the right. It wasn't a it wasn't an established storm. It was right, just a disturbance it was a Pacific disturbance. Okay, and you could drag it across Central America, across the narrow part of Central America there, yep. into the southwestern Caribbean, and then pulled north, and then finally organized in the northwestern Caribbean, mm-hmm. and where it had no steering currents at all, and finally became a depression, and then then finally the steering currents arrived from both the east and the west and created that river of air going north that it was caught in and that it is caught in uh, now and and will take it on across the Carolinas. Do we have to worry about this one kind of curving a little bit? Well, once it gets offshore of the southeast coast, it's forecast to lose its steering and kind of sit out there. And some of the long-range computer forecasts kind of loop it back toward Florida, but as a very weak storm. Okay. There's a lot of dry air out there. The uh, upper-level winds don't look... Uh, conducive for it to be strong, and and other computer forecasts just kind of die it out and and take it off offshore. So we're talking seven days out, and mm-hmm. you know it's too far to be sure of those details. But there's no 
indication at this point of it being uh, extreme. I like it. So after this, you'll go back to Florida (laughs) uh, and monitor the situation. Yes. Uh, and you know, do you have any budding meteorologists in your family that are following along in your steps? Uh, no, my my uh, oldest son was going to be a journalist, and they scared him at journalism school because they told him, you know, if there's a plane crash, you're going to have to go interview the family, and, oh. and that wasn't for him. So he decided he wanted to be a teacher, and he ended up working in tech. But oh. uh, so no, no meteorologists. Okay. Well, you know, a lot of storm systems like this one inspire young people uh, to, to pursue it. You know, when I go out and I talk to schools, you know, one of the first things I do is I ask if they remember a storm that impacted them. And mm-hmm. they put their hands up and they yes. love to talk about it. Um, so that's sort of the, you know, after the storm, we see communities helping each other. That's always very wonderful to see. But also these kinds of systems inspire others to want to pursue uh, meteorology in in hopes that they can help people in the future. I can't tell you how many uh, people have told me over the years now, grown people, <laughs> that, that uh, oh, I was, you know, I was a young boy or girl yep. when Hurricane Andrew happened and I watched you and yes. you inspired me to go into broadcasting and uh, and now you know my son is interested <laughs> it's amazing it's amazing right no I mean, I mean I can't dozens and dozens of meteorologists have told me that uh, I still watch you know, Hurricane Andrew as it happened which is on YouTube now which was a video we made after the storm mm-hmm. and uh, you know I still watch that I wasn't around for Andrew but I watch your videos and mm. and videos that people have posted on YouTube of of that event. Yeah, it's 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 rewarding to inspire people to find something that they really care about. Yeah. Well, you do. You inspire me as well. And thank you for coming on today. I know you're a busy guy and to be able to grab you for a few mm. minutes to talk about this is really special. So, thank well, you. Thank you, Jen. We'll really do it again. It. Okay. All right, I'm my sure friend. we will. Thanks again to Brian Norcross for joining me today to talk about Hurricane Adalia, his incredible career, and the importance of being a great communicator when it comes to forecasting potentially devastating storms that change lives and livelihoods forever. I highly recommend both of his books, My Hurricane Andrew Story and Hurricane Almanac, The Essential Guide to Storms Past, Present, and Future. And I look forward to talking to him again. It's also important to remind folks if they live in a place that can potentially be impacted by hurricanes and tropical systems to please plan in advance, know your evacuation route and stay tuned to the latest forecast details from your local channels, your local forecasters and, of course, Fox Weather, which is always up and running to help you and your family stay ahead of the storm. Thank you to all of my listeners. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Or you can rate this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. I'm 
I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.